Welcome to Money and Meaning, a podcast where we explore the work and passions of people around the world who are working to unlock the power of markets for impact. I'm Dr. Allison Boxer, Managing Director at the Sorensen Impact Center. This podcast series is hosted by SOCAP Global and the Sorensen Impact Center. SOCAP Global convenes the largest and most diverse community in impact through live and digital experiences that educate, spur conversation, and inspire investment in positive impact. We work under the leadership of the Sorensen Impact Center, which helps organizations achieve their impact vision. The center is proudly housed at the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business. Each episode of Money and Meaning features news stories of amazing people who are leveraging the power of capital markets for the betterment of people and planet in a just and sustainable way. Many of these episodes were recorded live from our SOCAP 22 stage in San Francisco. The next flagship SOCAP event will be held in October 2023 in San Francisco. Make sure to register at SOCAPglobal.com. As a podcast listener, you can register with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-23 to save $50 off the current ticket price when you register at www.socapglobal.com. We hope to see you there. Today's episode of Money and Meaning features my onstage conversation at SOCAP22 with Dr. Rosalind Artist, President and CEO of Benedict College. The college in Columbia, South Carolina is among the highest ranked historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs in the Southeast. Benedict College is also a partner in Sorensen Impact Center's MAPS project. Using data and a student-centric approach, the MAPS project aims to help higher education institutions adapt to changing enrollment trends and better serve the needs for more diverse student bodies. In this podcast, Dr. Artis and I discuss opportunities and challenges at Benedict College and how innovative financial structures can help HBCUs support students on a path towards academic and professional success. Enjoy the conversation. I'm here with Dr. Rosalind Artis, um, and so I'd like to pass it over to her to introduce herself. Well, good morning, friends. I'm Rosalind Artis, president of Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, Benedict is a small, private, historically black college located in what I would consider rural South Carolina, though it is a capital city. So really, really excited to be here with you and tell you a little bit more about Benedict College. Great. Please, let's hear about it. Let's hear more about Benedict. Well, uh, Benedict was founded in 1870. Um, much like many of our HBCU peers, uh, we were founded just shortly after um, in the beginning of Reconstruction. Um, primary purpose is to educate the descendants of former slaves. That is work that we continue to do. Benedict's campus is located on what was an 80-acre slave plantation. Uh, an abolitionist purchased the plantation for $13,000 and built what is now Benedict College. So we have always been located on the same space. And I'm often taken by um, just the um, the impact of um, our job being to educate the descendants of the former slaves who once worked that actual land. The institution is largely focused on or largely educates a population of low wealth, 
first-generation students of color. Uh, by low wealth, may mean Pell-eligible students, if you can use that as a proxy for poverty. 85% of our population, which is exceedingly high by collegiate standards, are Pell-eligible or Pell-dependent students. Um, many are the first in their families to attend college. Most are considered rural poor, uh, which is a slightly different thing than uh, those of our neighbors and colleagues who are in more urban settings. There are different challenges toward uh, exposure uh, that often impact the learning process for these students. And of course, South Carolina, for those of you who are education scholars, may know that South Carolina is home to what is often referred to as the corridor of shame. That is the I-95 interstate corridor, along which there are some of the most um, poor, under-resourced, underserved uh, populations, and by default, poorest education systems, poorest K-12 education environments, from which we get many, many, many of our students. So our articulated purpose is the education of uh, people of color, or uh, certainly anyone. Our institution has never closed its doors on anyone. While HBCUs were born of discrimination and segregation, they have never been places that harbored segregation. We, of course, open our doors to all kinds of students and have a lovely, thriving, diverse student body. But our core population tend to be, again, low-wealth first-gen kids of color for whom we have to provide myriad services to help to support their learning experiences. Uh, many will be parents themselves. Um, many are homeless. Many are food insecure. And that's some of the data that really bubbled up, if you will, during COVID-19. Um, while I would dare say that COVID-19 had any positive outcomes, I would suggest to you that while I could have sat here, I could sit here and tell you the data, like 85% Pell eligible, how many kids from South Carolina. What COVID-19 forced us to do was dig a little deeper, to pull back the cover and learn things like 31% of my students are housing insecure that 12% of my students reside in digital deserts for whom there is no access to broadband technology. So even if we were mailing out laptops during the pandemic, which we were, the mighty Apple is a brick if there is no broadband infrastructure in the community for it to connect to. So we began to get a deeper understanding of the individual stories of our students. We learned that 10% of them are student parents themselves and therefore uh, have not only their own needs to care for, but those of minor children that are dependent on them. And so I think um, the MAPS project and Sorensen really came along at a very, very important time for Benedict College. It was a time of introspection and reflection where we really started to think deeply about how we fully serve the needs of our students. Uh, pa uh, food pantries, clothing closets, toiletry pantries. We provide bus passes for our students. Uh, we are committed to affordability for a low wealth student population. and so. Um, at $24,000, that seems like a, a lot of money, but for a private institution, quite frankly, it's relatively inexpensive. Our tuition was a little over $30,000 when I started five years ago. We did a 26% tuition reduction in 2018. It was important for us to keep our commitment to affordability. We also do not mark up our food service plan. Our students pay exactly what our food service provider charges us. We are the only school I've ever known in life that does not have a markup. Uh, during COVID-19, we went to all uh, open access resources so that our students would not have the $1,000 to $1,500 textbook cost. So I think Benedict has a firm commitment. I have a firm commitment to ensuring both affordability and accessibility of education. And accessibility for us really means providing all of those wraparound services that our students most need to be fully successful. Thanks, Dr. Artis. It's great sure. to be up here with you. Uh, and so why are we up here today? I think um, 
you know, we're really looking to talk about why higher education needs data-driven investment and why investors should look at a school doing innovative things like Benedict College. So I really hope that you leave here thinking there are opportunities to invest in higher education. Um, and here's one school that's taking action. So with that, let's dig a little bit into the MAPS project and then and what's happening in, higher in the higher education system. And then uh, I'll pass it back to Dr. Artis to talk more about some of the incredible things that they're doing at Benedict. So the MAPS project stands for Model, Analyze, Prototype, and Share. We partner with the Gates Foundation. Um, and the goal is to equip decision makers in higher education with the tools they need to create a more equitable system. So we use data, we use storytelling, and stakeholder engagement um, to understand key insights about higher education, where it's headed in the future, and how to chart a more equitable path. Through MAPS and through our data tools, we've looked at the demand for higher education. Um, and some scholars, and you may have heard of the demographic cliff that's coming in the next decade, uh, it really just means that uh, the number of high school students that will be graduating in the next decade, next decade is much lower than it is today. So essentially, the next generation is smaller than it is right now. But our data work has shown that enrollment um, is much more complex than just birth rates. Uh, the landscape is really changing, and that means that the classroom of 2032 is going to look very different than the classroom of today in 2022. The effects of declining enrollment won't be experienced uniformly across different demographics. So race, place, and income will all have an impact. And specifically, black or African-American students, students living in rural areas and low-income students will be the most severely impacted by this unequal distribution of declining enrollment. And Dr. Artis mentioned the pandemic, um, you know, especially since the pandemic, many colleges and universities are seeing enrollment and uh, shifting demographics that's leading to a number of challenges that they have to tackle with fewer and fewer resources because declining enrollment means declining revenue, right? So um, just to illustrate this, between the spring of 2020 and the spring of 2022, um, we saw a 7.4% decline in enrollment. And that's only in two years. Um, but as I said, not all demographics uh, experienced this in, in the same way. Black men, specifically, experienced some of the sharpest drops in enrollment. Um, and even at particular types of institutions like community colleges. So really male enrollment and black enrollment is, is a big topic of conversation right now. Um, but all of this is really making the case for higher education leaders to make data-backed decisions as they are tasked with ensuring their institution's financial sustainability while also increasing access and equity for students. It's quite a challenge, right? So putting this all together, here's what's happening. Um, fewer students are enrolling in higher education in the coming years. That means there's going to be greater competition among universities. Um, and so really, the institutions that thrive 10 years from now are going to be the ones that ensure diverse student success. And there's an opportunity for colleges and universities to act now. And some, like Benedict College, are doing just that. Um, so let's talk briefly about the MAPS project, what makes it unique. Um, 
when people think about comparing colleges, they go immediately to ranking systems, right? The, all of the different rankings that we hear about. Um, but those ranking systems tend to favor colleges uh, with more financial resources and fewer high-needs students. They lack that important context um, and can penalize colleges and universities that are serving more historically marginalized students. So the MAPS project doesn't rank institutions. We provide um, data tools and the ability to compare schools within the same sector to gain relevant insights into how different schools and their peers are doing and how they're prioritizing budgets and supporting student success. So really, our goal with MAPS is to empower higher education leaders and others with the tools that provide deeper insight and equitable foresight into how um, financial decision making can really affect student outcomes. Um, our tools also allow people to visually understand their institutions, their peers, and national data trends. So what do I mean? Um, we've made, we've done a lot of work. Uh, we'll uh, have a QR code for you at the end. Um, but there's three specific data tools I'm talking about today. The first is our landscape model, which models demographic trends to examine who will be driving the demand for higher education um, over the next decade. So it takes into account student racial and ethnic demographics, flows across states, trends in public and private sectors, you know, among many other variables. Second tool is our Institutional Equity Outcomes Dashboard. That's quite a mouthful, um, but it's really just looking at um, different colleges and universities and visually showing um, how they are able to serve students of different races and ethnicities, how well they're doing on that dimension, um, and where there are opportunities to better serve students. And then the last model or tool that I'm talking about here is the Financial Health Dashboard which helps institutions, state policymakers, others um, understand the financial situation of colleges and universities. And so really taken together, this work can help um, institutional leaders um, and others envision their future students, assess their current capability to serve those students, and make decisions of where to invest to better prepare for students headed their way. And so a little bit more about our partnership. Um, in order to create an equitable education system where every student is supported, leaders of higher education institutions need to first examine the disparities within their own institutions. So this summer, we partnered with Benedict College to determine additional ways that the college could support underserved students in its community. We used our tools and developed insights for Benedict College to illustrate new areas of opportunity, just bring additional data to bear um, to support their work and help frame strategic questions to help them anticipate trends and continue driving the change that they're doing. So um, really, in conclusion, because I'll pass it back to Dr. Artis, the real reason we're all here is that investors and other partners can use MAPS data tools to help ask questions and understand where investment is needed most in higher education institutions and in the system, higher education system overall. The goal is really to drive um, more data-driven decision-making in higher education, helping lead to more equitable systems for all. Um, and of course, a more equitable system is gonna take investment. And we know that you need data to make sound investment decisions. Um, but I do want to note uh, that these tools are intended to be used in conversation 
and not alone without context. Um, so I want you to come away thinking there are institutions like Benedict doing amazing and innovative work that need investment to scale. And all of this matters because we know that in the long run, education fuels a healthy society, democracy, workforce, you name it. So with that, we'll pass it back over to Dr. Roslyn Artis to tell us more about what you're doing at Benedict College. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, we are serving students. Um, that is what we're here to do. We're here to serve students. We had an idea. We had a thought. We had a gut. We had intuition that our students desperately needed additional wraparound services in order to be successful. We've always known that. We've always provided that at Benedict College. When we talked about affordability earlier, uh, that was a very intentional decision on our part to fully support our students to the extent possible. Uh, there is a cost to that. So as we look at the financial indicator tool uh, that Sorensen has provided or the MAPS project has provided for us, it simply affirmed what we already knew, right? The students who have the least cost the most, and that your inverted business model um, wreaks havoc uh, on your ability to serve students. We understand that fully. But what we don't always see, what you don't always see, is context uh, and the narrative around those stories. This is not poor financial decision making. This is very intentional decision making designed to support students primarily, uh, students first at Benedict College. And so thinking about financial indicators in a much more thoughtful, contextual way, helping people understand that we are a function of our endowment size, which has a whole host of historic drivers, um, is really impactful and really important for us. Helping us to figure out where we can make the best investments going forward to assist and support our students is also very impactful. I've got a decent gut for this work because I'm committed to these kids and to this population. But the affirmation of what we thought we knew and some new learning uh, that came out of the MAPS project was incredibly helpful to us. We began to think about not just our traditional 18 to 21 year old population. You've heard uh, the discussion around the demographic cliff. What we know, what we have always known, is that people of color, particularly in South Carolina, we have a large uh, incarcerated population, low-level offenders who will soon be released and will need to reintegrate into society and be able to contribute in meaningful ways. Who is supporting that population? Not many. Uh, we know that we have a tremendous number of adult learners who have some college but no degree because very often poverty disrupts the education trajectory. We do not see students very often that are finishing in four years. It's not a linear cycle for our students. Uh, for many, life intervenes, whether that is financial challenges, whether that is the birth of a child, the death of a parent, uh, or a whole host of disruptions that occur. The need to take on a second or even third job for many of our students tends to disrupt their educational trajectory. And so having full appreciation of the needs to serve adult learners um, was, was an area that we thought we needed to focus in. When we look, some of the learning that I think I referred to post-COVID or in the midst of COVID really was that we had a number of students on our campus that were former foster care. And we knew that based on the data in South Carolina, there were a whole, there were a whole lot more of those students out there. Um, but we needed affirmation of that. We needed to understand fully those demographic patterns. We needed to understand what that population looked like, how to reach them, uh, how to teach them, how to serve them, and how to support them. And so the data that was derived from the MAPS project told me a couple of things. It told me we were on the right track with thinking about the underserved among the underserved, right? Our adult learners, our former incarcerated, our former fosters, and to some extent our military families. Uh, we have the fourth largest military base in the country. 
we know that our military is overpopulated, quite frankly, with um, low wealth people of color who are looking for options post high school. Many will opt for the military service, an honorable um, choice, but overpopulated, over-enrolled, oversubscribed as it relates to poor uh, minoritized communities. And South Carolina is no exception to that. And so we knew that we had these distinct populations, but we needed to understand exactly the size, depth, breadth of those populations the MAPS project helped us, helped us figure that out. We knew that we were investing heavily in student success, but when we took a look at the data to see how we compared with, not ranked against, how we compared with other similarly situated institutions that were doing good work. I don't just want to be compared to any old body. I want to be, prepared, I want to be compared against institutions who believe what we believe, think the way we think, serve the students we serve. So if I have a commitment to former incarcerated, I wanted to be benchmarked against other institutions that were doing that work effectively. And so the MAPS project helped us identify peers who were doing good work in the space that we could benchmark against and get a, a clear sense of where do the investments mean the most? Where do we get the biggest bang for the buck um, in helping to serve and support these populations? So looking at a peer data set was incredibly helpful for us. Um, I alluded early in my comments that uh, Sorensen came along at exactly the right moment. We thought we knew where we were headed. We thought we knew what we were doing. We were building out a concept called the Best Lives Center. Uh, Benedict engages st students' uh, trans transitions. Benedict engages student transitions. Sorry, we do things in acronyms of best at Benedict. Mm -hmm. um, sincerely, it's a thing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's meant to send a message. Right? We want to do the best that we can for our students. We want them to realize their best selves. And so when we looked at the transition, we looked at our 18 to 21-year-old population, our military families, our former incarcerateds, our former fosters, and our adult learners, five distinct populations, each of whom requires a very different set of services and supports if you are transitioning uh, from an incarcerated status. Housing assistance is going to be necessary. Everyone feels good about helping people except bad people. We've decided that's a bad person, not worthy of our assistance and support. We uh, reject that. Everyone is worthy, um, particularly those who have paid their debt and are being reintegrated. Um, former foster care students, they kept tuition waivers. So people always say, well, their college is paid for. How do they know that? They don't know how to access education. They don't know where to start. They don't have parents who, like my husband and I, are guiding our senior through the college application process. He's privileged. My son's privileged. These children are not. Uh, they don't know where to start. And more importantly, a tuition waiver doesn't really solve the problem of where you're going to sleep tomorrow while you're waiting on college to open in August. And so we know that there are a whole host of services and supports we have to provide. Adult learners typically have multiple jobs. Obviously, many will have children that need childcare support and other um, support structures to assist them in being successful. Um, alternative scheduling options, uh, diverse learning modalities are very, very useful, and yet you have to remember that with your children uh, and you're competing for screen time in a household that may be overpopulated, um, undersized, there are lots of disruptions. We certainly learned that during COVID-19. So having the data the inputs, if you will. How many students can we serve to scale? What services and supports will they need? How much is it going to cost? And what is the impact to that on the institutional bottom line? You know, for us, it is less about um, making money off of these kids. That's not, I mean, I love the national narrative that suggests greedy colleges and universities are trying to um, over-enroll low-wealth kids just for money. Well, it's sort of a circular kind of conversation here. 
if I don't have money, I can't support the, it's sort of circular. We're a tuition dependent institution. And so having those data points to really demonstrate the extent to which we're investing in our students, um, the success rates of those students, our graduation rates suck. There I said it. They suck. By traditional standards, they suck. My kids work. My kids have kids. My kids come from low wealth environments. My kids don't have access to the internet. My kids don't have food sometimes. My kids don't have a safe place to sleep. Does that change your opinion about whether we're a good institution or a bad institution because one in four get out in four? Is that really the standard? Who said so? Who decided that four years was the benchmark and anybody who doesn't finish in four is a failure? I reject that assessment model out of hand. Um, people, their circumstances, context, and that's what the MAPS project really provided for us. Institutional context, national context, uh, placing Benedict in its appropriate context in the narrative so that we could tell our story in a way that makes sense to people who, who, who look at data. People lie, numbers don't, well, sort of, most of the time. Um, <laughs> I, but we're very forthright about that. We've never not acknowledged that by traditional standards, um, we don't stack up well. But to the kid who gets out of there in six and a half, who is a first generation student, it means the world. No affirmation necessary. That student walking across that stage really tells the story. And so again, this um, sort of data gathering, the MAPS project, came along at a time that we desperately needed additional services and support for ourselves. We needed data. We needed analytics. We needed to know that we were going in the right direction. We needed to know that if we pull this lever and make this investment, we can project this outcome. And that was incredibly helpful for us. And so I can't thank you enough uh, for what you've done for Benedict College. And I think, um, based on the data that we've been able to derive from the MAPS project and based on the inputs and some things that, quite frankly, we, were, we got wrong. Right? So it's great for, for me to say, like, I knew what I was doing. They just affirmed me. <laughs> Most of it, I knew what I was doing. Um, and on a couple things, they said, you might need to relook at that. You might need to relook at that. And so that's incredibly helpful, too. We learn from things that don't go our way. We learn from data that doesn't tell the story we want it to tell. And so we always want to approach these issues with fidelity. Um, and MAPS really helped us do that. Thank you, Dr. Otis. And now tell us a little bit more you know, um, about what you did with these insights and what Benedict College is either doing now or looking to invest in. I know you have some big things you're looking to invest in to support different student populations going forward. We do. So um, when we saw the analytics, what we learned is we can't do everything today. Financially, we can't do everything today. Um, it painted a picture for us of an enrollment trajectory. We certainly, like most institutions, um, um, took a hit. There's no, there's no really intellectual way to say that. We took a hit during COVID-19 because what happens typically with populations like ours is they panic. So it's a pandemic. You quit school and take a second job because the economy is tanking. Most people know, many of us may know, that no, that's the time to stay in graduate school. There's not much for you out there. There's not many job opportunities out there for college-educated kids. And so our population has the inverse response. They panic and take a second or third job. So we saw decreases in enrollment almost immediately at the beginning of COVID-19. Uh, for us, you heard the reference to across the nation about 7%. It was 14 for Benedict College, a 14% a decrease in enrollment in a single year. Um, we have a $50 million budget. That was a $9.3 million loss in one year. 
I still have to swallow <laughs> when I say that. I still have to swallow hard every time I say that. Um, and so clearly, every time, again, we pull a lever, there is a cost. So what we knew is that although we have four or five distinct populations, we believe we desperately need to serve. We believe that we are mission-bound to serve. We are a cornerstone institution in this community. Um, we also understood that there needed to be a phased approach. So we began with uh, our former, our former incarcerated. Uh, there is a second chance Pell program. You may have heard something about that across the country uh, that affords uh, individuals an opportunity to pursue college, uh, college courses while they are incarcerated, preparing for the transition process. So they have a skill set. Um, MAPS, of course, validated and verified for us that that was a fertile opportunity. Benedict applied and received permission from the federal government to administer Second Chance Pell. Uh, so that is a first step to serving potentially or soon-to-be former incarcerated students. Uh, we stood up uh, the Best Lives Center with, uh, instead of five distinct pathways, we started with one because Sorensen pointed out that Financially, based on modeling, we would bankrupt the institution if we tried to do everything we knew we needed to do all at once. So we have chosen to start with our Second Chance Pell and our transitioning students. We know there are some similarities. Um, so our prison population, potentially, um, has some few things in common with our um, former fosters. So we hope to be able to expand that work relatively quickly, but with the insights that we gained on our financial modeling and on uh, peer institutions and the things that worked well for them and the things that did not work well for them, we were able to add and subtract, if you will, um, to build a model that we think works for us. We will staff up with initially four uh, individuals in that center who will work on one, housing placement, two, job placement, three, academic assistance and support, and four, psychological counseling. We know that individuals um, bring with them their lived experiences. We accept that at Benedict College and we don't ignore that. Uh, we confront that head on. And so there's an immediate cost to us to making that investment. And yet we believe that based on the size of the population as documented um, by the MAPS project, that it will ultimately pay for itself, allow us margin to begin to invest in our second population and our third and our fourth, because it's, a, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. I am impatient. Um, I believe that every day that we sit here and have these conversations, there's a kid who's not being served because I'm sitting here talking to you. Um, it's my delight to talk to you. Please don't uh, <laughs> misinterpret that. But I'm sincere. Um, I don't sleep well. You shouldn't sleep well. None of us should sleep well, knowing that there are children and adults who desperately need support that we have the ability to provide, and yet we're overthinking it a little bit. So. They got to do the thinking, and we got to do the working, and it was a tremendous <laughs> partnership, and we're well on our way to opening the Best Lives Center and really excited about that work. And remind us again of the five populations that you mentioned at the beginning. Yes, our traditional student population, our 18 to 21-year-olds, our adult learning population, uh, 280,000 adults in South Carolina with some college and no degree, our former incarcerated population, our former foster care population, and our military families who are often underserved. That's great. Wonderful. And so um, I'd love to open it up for questions if you're okay with that. Happy to. Um, does anyone, and I'm going to check my phone just because it's the app, but um, we also have microphones for any questions in the audience as well. You're welcome to enter them either on the app or. Yes, please, over here. Hi, uh, Cindy Williams, Boston Catholic. Thank you for the presentation. So excited to see everybody's here. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned that the purpose of this project was to encourage investment. Mm -hmm. um, President, what kind of investment would you like to see at Benedict? If those of us that are managing funds, how can we invest in the work? 
Um, that is a great question. So very often colleges and universities are looking for direct student support in the way of scholarships. We've heard, you've all heard of the Mayoroff Scholars Program. It was immensely successful because the kids didn't have any other cares. Every need was met for those students. When you're dealing with low wealth first gen kids, you understand that anything can derail them. Adult learners, anything can derail them. So certainly direct support to students in the form of scholarship investments. Um, secondly, as we think about endowment building and sustainability for the institutions, um, while I know most of you are not in the business of uh, propping up endowments, endowments, um, it's critically important that we begin to grow those endowments to ensure the long-term sustainability of both the institution and the work that we do. Um, and so obviously part of the MAPS data was a uh, financial index uh, that really helped us see that the amount of endowment assets per student, uh, we don't stack up very well um, in, that, in that space. Um, the third is infrastructure investment and support. What we learned, of course, during COVID-19, if our students can't reach us, if they can't get the resources that we need, by rolling our textbooks into the cost of attendance initially and then subsequently going to all open source um, resource, uh, resources, investments in open educational resources for our students. So it's one thing to say to faculty, we're going to use open resources. Ever built a class without a book? Um, it is a heavy lift. And so we have to compensate our faculty to do that work. We paid them a summer salary to come in and transition their classes and to ensure that they're um, really highly effective courses using really um, solid resources and materials. We have faculty development costs and the need to, again, compensate them for that additional work. Not everybody, oddly, is compelled to do work for free. Go figure. I don't understand it. Um, and so faculty support and infrastructure investment is also really important to us. And finally, the institution, the center itself, the Best Lives Center, is going to require heavy staffing. This is hand-to-hand -hand combat in many instances. You're going to have to have counselors. You're going to have to have job placement people who are going out into the community and building bridges and relationships. We're going to have to have housing placement. We have... Um, we have procured a number of properties in our neighborhood. Um, we're going to rehab those properties and begin renting them at a very nominal rate um, for former incarcerated and former foster students who may not want to integrate. If you're 34, you don't want to live in a dormitory. Um, and of course, I've got to deal with the traditional population of students and parents who are saying, you're going to put those criminals with my students. Um, so we have to beat back that narrative uh, to some extent and then provide some housing options for those individuals because we still have very significant limits uh, in our communities, whether we want to admit it or not, there are biases that continue uh, long past release for these individuals. So lots and lots of ways to invest. I'd like to add on to that, <clears throat> excuse me if I can. Um, she mentioned the Best Life Center. So, um, you know, I think programs like that that are new, um, finding innovative ways to um, for investment, whether it's um, direct investment or, um, or other Founding of social enterprises, things like that. Um, you also mentioned housing. You know, I think that housing is a is a big area of investment, um, uh, or that could be a big area for investment. I also want to, um, I guess, suggest that higher education is a place that. Um, is ripe for disruption and um, needs change. Uh, and we're at the beginning, but I think innovative um, financial structures can really be helpful. So for example, she's working with um, formerly incarcerated people, and we know that social impact bonds have been used with um, recidivism and, um, and, in, car and the carceral state. Um, so how could that play in here? 
um, kind of bringing together different ideas. Um, also, we know that higher education is a place where there is a lot of um, social enterprises popping up. Um, you know, so what are those enterprises doing, um, you know, and how might we invest in those to better support students? Um, or are there new ones that need to be formed that we can um, incubate and accelerate? Um, so those are a few other ideas. And like I said, we're right on the edge, but, um, but I think it is ripe for uh, those sorts of investments right now. I, I know there might be another question, but you said something that really struck me. Um, incubate. Um, so Benedict has two business incubators. We have a women's business center. It is a statewide center. We're the only HBCU with a statewide uh, women's business center. Um, and we also have a business development center. So the traditional BDC and then a women's business center that we stood up during COVID-19 because we understood that women-owned businesses tend to circulate the dollars in the community seven times <laughs> longer than businesses founded and owned by others. Um, and so we needed to create that intergenerational wealth transfer um, and really kind of break some of those cycles of poverty. We understand at Benedict College that that part of the conversation has to be about creating jobs, not just going out and getting a job. So the incubator is a big piece of what we do at Benedict College. We're also doing uh, something called a QEP, the Quality Enhancement Plan, which we're required to do by our regional accreditor, and ours is financial literacy. I don't mean opening a checking account in exchange for a bag of chips. I mean... Um, Understanding the language of money, making good financial decisions. We have made very intentional decisions at Benedict College about affordability that I shared with you earlier. Um, we didn't make those decisions so kids can still go out and borrow a bunch of money and end up in debt leaving college. We know that the national conversation right now around uh, debt forgiveness, um, it is as frustrating a conversation as I've ever engaged in to see our own state uh, file suit to stop the debt forgiveness. This notion that uh, when the news did the story on debt forgiveness, they did it in front of the gates of Benedict College, as though we were the only college in town, as though University of South Carolina students didn't have any student loan debt. But the positioning, the narrative that black people right, are the ones getting something for nothing in terms of the debt forgiveness is a real challenge. And I would argue that that is not debt forgiveness in a true sense. That is a rebate for students who never should have had to take out those loans in the first place had Pell kept its commitment in this country to affordability. So it's an interesting, long conversation, but there are a whole host of other exciting things going on on the campus of Benedict College around our financial literacy efforts and our business development center and our incubators that also um, may be interesting avenues for investment. Blessings. Thank you so much for your work. Um, always repping in HBCU. Um, I graduated from FAMU class of 2006 um, and my third generation HBCU um, alumni and also professor. So thank you so much for your work. I would say that your story resonates so much for me. I'm thinking about um, Mayor McLeod Bethune, right, with Bethune College. I'm thinking about um, Tuskegee University, right, how Booker T. Washington was not only educating folks in the school, but also in community. What are some other HBCU narratives or histories that has inspired the current work that y'all are doing at Benedict? Oh, well, I'm really partial to the girls. I mean, you mentioned Mary McLeod Bethune. Um, Voorhees was also founded by a woman. Um, Elizabeth was a student of um, Booker T. Washington at Tuskegee and came and founded Voorhees College, despite the fact that it was burned down five times uh, by whites who did not want to see African-Americans successful. Um, she persisted and founded that institution. So that's always a really exciting narrative for me. I'm doing a little bit of side research, you know, 
fun fact, there are only 88 women who have led these institutions in the history of HBCU land. Uh, some, of us have done, some of us are the first to do it, um, the first at Benedict, the first at my prior institution. So if, some, if there's only 103 and most of us are on our first and a whole bunch have never had one, that will tell you, uh, we tend to approach this work no offense, gentlemen, uh, from a very maternalistic, holistic perspective, in my opinion. And so watching the work of some of the women who have done great things um, excites me a lot. Um, and in the sense, in the interest of equity, I would suggest to you that Morgan State's doing phenomenal work. Um, what, what David Wilson is doing there is nothing short. It is the greatest comeback story I've ever seen. I mean, Morgan has always been a good institution, but what he's built there in the last decade is just unbelievable. They are the other women's business center at an HBCU. Now, I would, theirs is just Baltimore, ours is statewide, but um, uh, he's doing phenomenal, phenomenal work um, at Morgan. Um, I tend to think about narratives for institutions that we don't hear as much about. I think uh, Dr. J, as we affectionately refer to her, is doing great work at Norfolk State. Um, there's a lot of HBCUs that are in their, own, in their respective communities doing tremendous work. Um, interesting, Benedict isn't often thought about in the research space, and yet we rank as you unpack rankings to the extent that you do, we're punching significantly above our rate in federal research dollars. So I think it is not hard to find amazing success stories at a whole host of historically black colleges across. I, I too, am an HBCU graduate West Virginia State, so I'm pretty partial to that one, too. <laughs> yes, we have one down here. Sorry, give a question. Oh. Can I? Um, why don't we go here, and then we'll come back to you. Um, Jason Allen, Mass Mutual. Uh, thank you for this great uh, panel. I'm interested in the data that you've unpacked. Have you been able to share that with policymakers to help support initiatives, right? So as an example, mm -hmm. getting internet to rural areas, more grants for people who, who might need financial aid. Can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to leverage the data with other stakeholders as well, if, if you've had a chance to do it? Thank you. So I think the short answer is you heard it here first. Um, so the data has not been um, publicly distributed at this point beyond this conversation, um, but I suspect that it will be. Clearly, what we learned in COVID-19, again, 12% of my students are in digital deserts. Uh, we are in, we're in an interesting political state, for those of you who watch this foolishness. Uh, we're in South Carolina, so we have the titans of politics in South Carolina. We have James Clyburn, the whip, uh, and then we also have Lindsey Graham on appropriations and Tim Scott, who, I mean, it's just an interesting political titans of both parties, and yet we don't have broadband in the state. How's that possible? That arguably three of the most powerful people in Congress, and we don't have broadband in the state. So leveraging this data um, is going to be very important there. The um, Second Chance Pell program, the increase to the Pell program, um, obviously also things that are very, very important to us that we will use this data to continue to advocate um, for a number of national issues. When we think about, um, again, support for transition services, when we think about foster care policy and what happens mm -hmm. to these kids the moment they, quote, age out, there is no safety net for these children. That's criminal that in a civilized society, there is no safety net for children through no fault of their own have been spit out of a system that they didn't ask to be in in the first place. If I can add on uh, to that, 
that is a big goal of the MAPS project. Um, we would like this data to be used um, and, and our tools to be used for uh, advocacy, for working with state policymakers uh, to understand you know, the population flows, what's happening in higher education in their state, um, and hopefully get some investment. So if you or anyone, uh, we are still in the middle of the MAPS project, and um, we'll hopefully get more of it out there, um, be more visible in the coming months. So we would love for all of you to be our advocates. Um, using it with policymakers, with other um, influencers, decision makers. Um, so that's the first thought. The second thought is that when we're talking about investment, the question um, um, the man asked earlier is um, this is another area where you could use the tools to invest in higher education to support, you know, uh, she was talking about technology deserts, but that's another area of investment is um, is you know the technology that is needed, and even if it's not an investment directly, let's say in Benedict College, it's, a, it's an investment that helps them do their job better, right? If those students can um, have access to the internet, um, and then the third thought is that you mentioned um, the Foster system as well, and I mentioned earlier that. Um, you, you know, there's investment and um, precedent, I guess, with um, pay for success in the carceral state, um, but also with foster care as well. So that's even another population where um, pay for success is another form of investment. So um, just tying a lot of the different threads together. I think we have about one minute left, so we have this last question. Sure. So this is on eating uh, own dog food. Uh, congratulations for having Benedict as a diversity and inclusion university. So. I just want to know how are you tracking some of the impact DEA metrics like handling of sexual harassment, bully, discrimination reports from your own university staff and students? Are you following any innovative methods going beyond the usual checklist of this Title IX regulations? I have a vested interest. I'm, I'm into this space trying to learn how academia is working. Thank you. So clearly, the institution is bound legally and otherwise under federal financial aid um, to adhere to all Title IX policies, things of that sort. But what we know specifically at Benedict is that minority, minoritized populations tend to be the victims of a whole host of um, whether it's sexual violence um, or um, other negative actions that result in, quite frankly, um, brokenness uh, among our students. And so we do have a counseling center with full-time counselors in addition to contractual relationships with psychologists who engage with our students on a regular basis. Uh, we have uh, two organizations on the campus that are student-led, uh, that are advocacy organizations for our students. Uh, our Title IX officer is wildly well-educated and incredibly empathetic, and I think that's really important, knowing the rules, um, but then being passionate and committed about applying the rules and really advocating for victims. Uh, we have a student success center that is staffed with individuals who have done quite a bit of writing and publishing as it relates to um, Title IX in particular uh, and sexual harassment to ensure that our students have a safe space within which to matriculate. Uh, we try to eliminate barriers. That's the business that we're in at Benedict College. Thank you for a great question. Great. Danica, would you mind going back a slide? Um, so that we can see the, there is a QR code for the MAPS uh, landing page if you're interested in the tools um, and of course the work with Benedict College. Um, I hope that you can see that there are really shining lights, beacons um, of example out there in the higher education space. It is um, ripe, it is important that our entire population is able to um, to be educated uh, and to um, fulfill, you know, their own um, path in life, and whether they are incarcerated from um, foster care, you know, um, 
think they're past the age that people go to college when they're really not, you know, have children, regardless of their life circumstances, there are beacons like Benedict College that are doing incredible work, and there are opportunities um, for investment in these areas. So thank you for being here. Thank you to Dr. Artis for Entirely sharing your work. And thank you. Um, obviously, I don't want to leave out opportunities for investment in uh, MAPS and Sorison directly. Obviously, I advocate for Benedict <laughs> College, generally speaking, but we need advocates. We need ambassadors. We need each of you um, to speak life over these institutions and to make investments that make sense and to collaborators and partners that help us to do our work more effectively. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. If you were inspired by the conversation and are interested in getting more involved with the SOCAP community, Join us at SOCAP23 in October. As a podcast listener, you can register with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-23 to save $50 off the current ticket price when you register at www.socapglobal.com. We look forward to seeing you in October. And be sure to subscribe to Money and Meaning wherever you get your podcasts to be notified about our next episode's release.